Kaya Wanju. Welcome to this podcast in the Word and Image series, coming to you from the land of the Wujak Nunga people in Perth, Western Australia. The Word and Image podcast series is a collaboration between the John Curtin Gallery and the Curtin University Creative Critical Imaginations Research Network. In this podcast series, staff and students share and discuss their works of creative writing produced in response to exhibitions at the John Curtin Gallery. This podcast is part of Where the Ink Falls, containing ekphrastic responses to Moon in a Dewdrop, an exhibition of work by the artist Lindy Lee. In today's podcast, we explore the materiality of art and how writers and visual artists understand the artistic process. In this podcast, you will hear four Curtin University staff members, Susanna Castleton, Christina Chow, Caitlin Malin and Anne Ryden. They will read and discuss their work with host Rachel Robertson. Let's start by hearing Caitlin Malin read her poem after Lindy Lee's Echoing the 10,000 Patterns. After Lindy Lee's Echoing the 10,000 Patterns. All I want is molten, hardened, shattered into the points of the globe, which stick through oceans. The ladle, the artist Lindy says, is all she needs to make worlds. It's the size of my arm, the bowl, my two hands cupped. My sister, the stained glass artist, needs to leave the country to work with acid, hydrofluoric. The smallest amount to the hand doesn't burn, but you can wake in the night to find your bones gone. I must look up whether the bones become brittle or molten. The motto, you can disappear without notice. The circle of the artist looks like acid hitting water and bubbling into air. This too is toxic. My sister works with glass, not shattered, deliberately cut. The metal around the glass, lead, toxic, is welded lightly. This is not enough. She wants the acid that cuts the glass in different levels, layers it so the light is graded. She adds sulfuric acid to the hydrofluoric so if there's a pinprick in the glove, she feels it. An apocrypha I hold dear is that to touch a thing hot enough, like lava, like molten metal, like spun glass, with your toe will kill the rest. The shock will stop you, like a bushfire, immolating a house by heating air. When Lindy throws these shapes, drips them from the open bowl of ladle head, they glow red, but when cooled are dull as dead fish eyes. Then she takes a hammer to them before buffing them back up, like applying moisturiser to an arse after a spanking. There's an art to violence and violence in art. My sister, the artist, picking forms and setting them ablaze. Thank you for that, Caitlin. Can you tell us what triggered this poem and how did you develop it? I was really taken by, there was, an in, there was a video of her process in mm. the exhibition of Lindy's process of actually working with a substance so dangerous, kind of like molten metal, but also something that moves through dates. And as I was working on it, I was having these ongoing conversations with my sister, who's like a preeminent Australian stained glass artist about the types of work she wanted to be doing with glass. And although she isn't like a, a glass blower, 
I had these images of working with fire and with flame, thinking about her process and Lindy's process. And then just about that element of danger or risk that seemed involved in both of their work, even if it isn't like an explicit part of how they both understand their process. And then I wanted the form of the poem to kind of reflect like the shattering that's involved or the piecing together, the mosaic nature of both the work that I was responding to in Lindy and also my sister making these minute pieces of glass come together into something whole. And I think at that time my sister was also working with absences with air in the glass and the particular piece of Lindy's that I was responding to has all, it's, it's more defined by the space around the pieces of metal than it is necessarily by the, the metal that's there. And I was interested in that confluence between the two things as well. Yes, and your poem really reflects that on the page, which listeners may not have quite been able to imagine, but there are all these white spaces on the page in your poem. You talked a little bit about the dangerousness of the material that Lindy Lee works with and also your sister and many other visual artists and sculptors and so on. How dangerous are words when you work with them as a poet? So not dangerous how I work with them. I guess maybe at times, like the risk, you could offend someone with a word. (laughs) So ideas can be dangerous. Ideas can be dangerous. We all know that. But I'm just laughing because I'm thinking about two people I know that have recently had paper cuts to the eye and I'm like, (laughs) dangerous materials. (laughs) And one of them even had to go to workplace health and safety about it because it happened at work. (laughs) And so I was like, even in poetry, there's danger (laughs) from the material. But no, it's um, I, I guess I was really the difference in the physicality of the different art forms. So although poetry can be dangerous in different ways. It's not posing a physical danger to me and my making of it. Like there might be poets out there who, because of life circumstances, the making of their poems and what they cover in them could then, because of readership, pose physical dangers to them, but not mm. not for me in the actual making of it. Yes, and I think that's one reason why some of us as writers are quite fascinated by the kind of more material arts like sculpture and installation and visual arts and particularly Lindy Lee's work, which covers a range of paper and tearing and making holes and using all different materials, yeah, can including you imagine being, precious metals. Yeah, Being good at like multiple things and being able to use multiple <laughs> I, things. I can imagine it. Only. <laughs> Not that you, you, of course, are, Rachel, but I am yes. very bad. <laughs> Yes, but I mean, as as poets, we do try to imaginatively enter that space Mm. and I think that's a little bit of what your poem has done. So thank you for that, Caitlin. Let's bring Susanna Castleton into this conversation. Susanna, your essay, The Weight of a Whole, also focuses on the materiality of Lee's art and its resonance with your own work as a visual artist. 
What gave you the idea to approach this through the notion of weight? For two reasons, really. One was watching Lindy give the most wonderfully honest and kind of uh, physical, I guess, um, lecture to a group of staff and students as part of her exhibition and seeing the way that she stood and kind of uh, mimicked the particular physical actions that she did in making her work really stuck with me as that, that wonderful thing of when you see an artist articulate their work in the flesh. There was something very beautiful about seeing the way that she stood and I kind of write about that in my little piece. But then from that, looking at her work and knowing her work quite well beforehand, being able to be in the proximity of the work itself, which does have such an incredibly different um, kind of register of weight between works. We've got steel, we've got paper, we've got things with holes in them, we've got things that don't have holes in them, and the, the metal works are hung on the wall just like the paper works are hung on the wall next to them. So I think the whole thing um, really to me those two parts that have joined together in this sense of weight. Mm, so interesting. Thank you. So, Susanna, would you like to read your essay to us now? Sure. So it's called The Weight of a Hole, and it's in several parts. The Weight of Feathers. I must have been quite young when I first encountered the question of what was heavier, a ton of feathers or a ton of lead. The trick question was successfully navigated, but in answering it, an image evolved that has stayed with me. I conjured up two very different pictures. One was a scrap metal yard seen from a slightly elevated angle with a block of lead, smaller than a car, bigger than a shoebox, that was firmly plunked on a set of industrial scales that confirmed the weight of a tonne. By contrast, the feathers that were much less easy to contain proved problematic because in my mind I was worried that if they were contained in, say, a hessian sack, it would add to the tonne and therefore give an incorrect weight. I was clearly overthinking the original question. So I had to imagine a way that the unruly tonne of feathers could be weighed but not contained. So I pictured a room full of entirely of white feathers and I invented a pressure pad type floor that became the device which in turn weighed out the tonne. It was a wondrously paradoxical, heavy, light, feather-filled gallery space that I can still clearly picture in my mind today. Keeping things in your head is good to a point, imagining what it might look like, what it might feel like, but that can only go as far as your mind knows. I guess Martin Creed's gallery is half full of coloured inflated balloons and Anthony Gormley's rooms full of fog would have started like that in the head. The weight of paper. The weight of paper is measured in GSM, grams per square metre. Imagine a square metre of paper on a set of scales. The floppiness of the thinner paper allows it to sneak away from the surface of the scale, a bit like the feathers escaping capture, making its GSM smaller and smaller by virtue of its thinness and suppleness. Heavier paper, like almost card paper, held firm by its own thickness of strength, would obligingly stay perfectly horizontal, allowing for the fullness of its weight to be collected on the scale, all 850 grams per square metre of it. A hole in a piece of 30 GSM paper also holds its form, contained and secure in a circumference of woven cotton fibres. Arsh's paper, thick and heavy and still made in a mill in France, has deckled edges that support the holes in a worn and warm parallel lines. Deckled edges have a quality of a winter shadow, furry and muted. The burned holes burrowed into the paper nudge and sometimes break the shadowy edges. The holes have a soft, heavy weight the weight of a hole. 
What happens to the weight of paper when half of it becomes a whole? What would the scale say now? Does the weight of a hole correlate to the weight of the paper? Is a hole in steel heavier than a hole in paper? What is heavier, a ton of holes or a ton of holes tied together with string? The weight of custard. Lindy Lee tells a story of her first experiments pouring molten lead into water, where unsatisfactorily the liquid metal fell too fast, leaving shapes that, instead of being interesting, were bottom-of-the-pot blobs. The desire for greater viscosity prompted further experiments, seeking a stickier, gluier liquid to support and stall the weight of lead as it fell. Custard was the solution. It allowed the cool thickness of slow to slow the transformation of liquid to solid. What is heavier, a ton of custard or a ton of lead? We spent a New Year's Eve in Austria when I was about 16 with my Austrian aunt who drew us into the stories and customs of her own teenage years. At midnight, in the deep snow outside our shack in the mountains, where it was so cold our snot and tears turned into ice, we melted lead. The tradition of Bligisen involved pouring the liquid metal into an old saucepan of freezing water and then reading the shapes that formed as a portent to the year ahead. They all seemed to look the same, like misshapen fishing sinkers, if only we'd had custard. The weight of oil. Richard Wilson half-filled a gallery space with engine oil in his artwork 2050. It was black, pitch black, sticky, viscous, and reflected and mirrored the gallery architecture in its liquid surface. You felt immersed in it by virtue of the narrow corridor viewing platform, and up close you could see small flecks of dust trapped in the molasses-like viscosity. The surface tension where the oil met the edge of the viewing platform created an alluring meniscus, like the edge of polished poured molten metal or of a dewdrop. The fundamental principle of lithography, a type of printmaking, is that oil and water don't mix. A waxy crayon is used to draw on a porous stone which is then flooded with water. An oil-based ink is rolled over the wet stone where it is repelled by the water but adheres to the waxy crayon from which a print is made. It's an oily mirror image of the drawing on a stone. Hessian, put through a photocopier on the other hand, is neither mirrored nor inky but instead half the image is printed on holes, a print on a hole. The weight of rain. The curiosity of viscosity that drove the custard water question could be extended to ink. To discuss the viscosity of ink and the blackness of black is a particular printmaking thing, but like the fall of the lead, the thickness of ink will determine if it falls or sits on a surface in a particular way. Too runny and it seeps, too rigid and it fails to transfer to the paper. You can read all this in a printmaking manual, but you can only know it by experiencing the matter of ink. I want to imagine what would be the difference between less viscous ink flung on heavy GSM paper left in the rain and more viscous ink flung on lighter GSM paper left in the rain. What if the ink was oily and what if the holes were burned or cut and the rain heavy or light? Would the ink pull or pull? The weight of a ladle. Handed the molten bronze in a ladle, the huge weight of it choreographs the fall of the metal. Lindy demonstrates this in the lecture theatre, stance wide, feet firmly planted. Hips and waist are the fulcrum that mediates the imaginary weight of the metal and directs the energy of the imaginary toss. She speaks about not being able to manufacture the fall of the fluid bronze, and I wonder if there's a variation in the viscosity of molten bronze. It's not a printmaking thing, that. An etching plate, another type of printmaking thing, can be copper or steel or zinc. All are buffed, polished, and the edges are perfectly bevelled before an image is applied. 
They're often so beautiful that it's difficult to imagine anything on them other than a reflection. The weight of a dewdrop. The precariousness of dewdrops on the lupin leaves this morning when we walked through the field was evidenced by the position of the lupin plant itself. If nestled near a tree in the long winter solstice shadows, the drop holds fast in its windless shadowy space. But if positioned beyond the shadows and touched by the sleepy northern rays, it disappears. The form of the leaf holds the dew to a point, but like the paper on scales, must hold the weight of itself and now a dewdrop too. I wonder if the weight of each individual dewdrop varies because of the GSM of the leaf on which it forms. It turns out the weight of a feather pillow is measured in grams per square metre, and a square metre of lead, if it was nine centimetres thick, weighs a tonne. The weight of a hole remains elusive. That's such an interesting essay, Susanna. And it makes me think of your essay, Anne Ryden, called Where Does Art Begin? in which you write about Lee's artworks in the studio and in an exhibition space. Tell us what inspired your piece. I'm not actually sure what came first with it, but I think it was hearing Lindy Lee talk about her practice and how, you know, the art comes, she, the art doesn't begin and end with her, it comes through her. And that kind of gave me both curiosity and a permission to go and look at her artwork, not as a finished piece, but as part of something bigger. And that allowed me to insert myself into that space and look at the gallery space, which is what I'm doing in the piece. I am guilty of being very fascinated by the shiny floors in the gallery. So I go in and I, and I, can't, I can't get over it. I've seen other exhibitions in there too. And I actually look at the reflections of the artwork and go, this is amazing. And then I go, oh, that's bad because you should look at the art. Um, Lindy Lee gave me the permission to be fascinated by the reflections and the shadows. Mm. And so that's where it came from. And there were shadows on the wall behind some of her works as well as on the floor reflecting back up. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. And then there was the, you know, the visitors that are also reflected in there and that throw shadows on the walls. Yes. Um, so it all gets mixed, which I really like. And I think this is part of what we're trying to do with our ecrastic response to art as writers that we're we're kind of not just being a, a passive audience we're kind of trying to interact and offer something of something creative of our own to intermingle with the exhibition and your piece very much does that so I'd love if you could read your piece for us now Anne. I certainly can. Thank you Rachel. Where does art begin? On the mirror-polished floor, reflections of visitors stretch towards one another, crossing, mixing, touching. Sometimes their edges are softened by the brush of a shadow of someone else moving past. Sometimes they stand alone, but always contemplating the art in front of them. Curling down one wall, sheets of paper cascade with ink flowing according to a random natural order. On another, sheets of steel punched through with holes of all different sizes unfurl as if by gravity. The holes, their edges, and the blackened steel play for attention with the shadows and light they cast onto the wall behind them. They are apart from their reflections on the polished floor, where they mix with the mirrored spectators whose shapes, unaware, become one with the art. On the other side of the country, the negatives of these steel sheets sit flat on the wall of the artist's studio. Residue of many sized black dots will be found there. 
prints that came into being as the ribbons of steel were painted black. Though unseen, they are not separate from the shadows and reflections created and seen here in the gallery. The difference between hearing and listening, Rebecca Solnit says, is that to hear is to let the sound wander all the way through the labyrinth of your ear. To listen is to travel the other way to meet it. Looking and seeing may be similarly related. If to look is to let your eye take in what's in front of you, then to see is to release yourself to meet the image in the space between. Seated in excitement in the rows of a small lecture theatre are students, colleagues, writers, artists, talking passionately about something, everything and nothing. Unaware of how they know to do so, they hush. A woman with black hair, flowing movements and a strong gaze stands in the semi-darkness next to a large screen where images of her art are projected. She begins to speak. As she tells of lead and custard, a dish she once concocted in pursuit of her art, she takes a few steps to her left and is suddenly fully visible in the light that reflects off the screen. The projected image cuts across her face and marks her skin. One thing grows into the next, she says. The space she has been given in which to speak is away from her studio, so she tells of her own history, philosophy and how she works as an artist. Otherwise, she would be the sound of her practice in her studio and her practice the image of her. In that way, she exceeds her work as her work transforms her. On the gallery floor, the viewer sees and understands this, while ideas sprint for meaning and spin us in their middle, reaching for ever bigger questions. Where does art end? Where do we begin? Thank you, Anne. And your piece ends with two questions. Where does art end? Where do we begin? And these take us very nicely to Christina Chow's essay, which is written in the form of a letter to her partner and which also features her daughter. Christina, I'm interested to know what made you think of writing this as a letter and what it reflects about your preoccupations as an art critic. Yeah, I guess I was interested in writing letters, or I have been for a while actually, as a form of art criticism in a few publications because writing a letter is something that's really personal, but it also enables the thoughts about your life, um, intimate relationships, also thoughts about art to kind of permeate and weave into one another. So I found that the form of writing a letter was really conducive to mixing all of those parts of my life together. And I was also interested in writing a letter in this um, edition and this project because a lot of my life is actually enmeshed in parts of one another. I'm attending a lot of uh, art exhibitions with my daughter. I'm thinking about art when I'm awake at two o'clock in the morning. And the idea of compartmentalising art theory, art history and art criticism away from my life seems an impossibility at the moment. So this felt like a really great exercise to kind of mix in all of those intentions and ideas. Yes, and I think it works really well that way, Christina. I love that idea that we can include our own life in our response to art because how we respond is often quite personal, isn't it? Absolutely. And I think that even though we might see art in a white cube or in an institution, it affects our personal lives or we, we bring our personal lives into how we read art as well. 
Absolutely, yes. So I'd really love to hear you read your piece now, Your, if you could read your essay, Christina. Thank you. Between you, me and Lindy, it's early in the night and you're already dozing. You're exhausted from working 14-hour days, starting so early so you can finish in time to see me and our daughter. I know that we're trying to stay humble and grateful for the things that we have, even though every day feels never-ending, yet months just slip away. I'm writing you this letter because if I don't, these thoughts will slip away, and I insist on finding a way to press my thoughts onto you. Otherwise, where is the space of a relationship? How do we glimpse each other and meet in between rather than passing one another? I went to the exhibition opening for Lindy Lee, Moon in a Dewdrop with Aki tonight. We were able to see the show before everyone else, which was lucky because then Aki had a toilet accident. The show includes some of Lee's earlier pieces, where she worked with photocopies of Western art historical masters. A piece in particular, titled The Silence of Painters, has been celebrated for her critique of postmodern Mizena Beam, not only because it is an image made up of images, but as reproductions of reproductions, she emphasises how reproducibility generates power and cultural capital. Walter Benjamin, Lucy Lippard, Linda Nochlin, John Berger and Arthur Danto are obvious figures to guide interpretations of the work. But instead of leaning on theory and criticism, I'm caught remembering my dad's hallway. Do you remember this story? When I was young, my dad had bought a reproduction of the Mona Lisa and mounted it in the hallway with a thick gold rim and installed light bulbs around it. My dad would proudly exclaim to each visitor, my Mona Lisa is bigger than the real thing. I remember standing in front of the piece as a teenager and feeling the light bulbs burning my cheeks and hoping that it would all catch fire. Coincidentally, our Melville City America art box was delivered today. As a response to COVID times and a way to get families involved in local arts, Artbox invites 10 local artists to devise an activity for children. It's a ripper lineup, and Dan Burke's activity instructs kids to glue and paint pasta around a printed portrait using a printout of Mona Lisa as an example of a work of art. Somehow all of this has come full circle. Already Aki is thrilled to adorn the lady with pasta and I caught myself saying, one day you might see the real version of this painting, and so the cycles of art and power continue. In the gallery, I'm not cringing at Lee's work like I did in my dad's hallway, so perhaps the joke is on me. In The Silence of Painters, Lee points out to how reproduction is fundamental to the machinations of art history where framing power relies on a copy referring to a sacred original. At the time of making the work, Lee called herself a copy of a copy, no doubt expressing her feelings of ambiguity and ambivalence around identity that reproduction inevitably creates. Similarly to Lee's family, my Chinese ancestors fled, sometimes unsuccessfully, from persecution during the Cultural Revolution in China. They fled to Hong Kong and then to Australia, and Lindy and I were each first-generation Chinese-Australians. When I hear her say she felt like a copy of a copy, I can feel similar reverberations of dislocation, broken familial memory and lineage. I feel unmoored and confused. Will Aki feel this way too, like another copy further detached from something we can't even begin to understand? I feel so sad that it's unlikely that we'll go to Hong Kong as a family together. Not anymore after what has happened to our city. And so perhaps Lindy Lee, Dan Burke, Dad and Aki are all right that objects gain power and magnetism through their reproduction because copies accelerate the desire for more copies. It doesn't matter if it's kitsch, parody or simply about relishing a work of art in your own home, especially if it's bigger than the real thing. 
I'll likely rely on showing Aki photos of Hong Kong and our family holidays and talk about how that city once was. And she'll only know about that place and those times through stories and images. Thank you, Christina. Another wonderful piece. It's been really wonderful to hear four different ways of writing about and in response to the materiality of art, and in particular, the art of Lindy Lee. Lee's work and the readings we've just heard take me back to the final few lines of Caitlin's poem. The artist picking forms and setting them ablaze. Thank you for listening to this podcast with work from Curtin University Writers. Our book, titled Where the Ink Falls, is available for free on the John Curtin Gallery website if you wish to read these and other poems and essays. Other podcasts in this series focus on the migrant experience and art and on the composition process. This podcast series was sponsored by the Curtin University Creative Critical Imaginations Research Network and the John Curtin Gallery. Music by Hi, OK, Sorry. Podcast editing by Pear Henningsgaard. Your host was Rachel Robertson. Thank you. Thank you.